Amen. All right, you guys can go ahead and have a seat. All righty. So, uh, welcome everybody. It's really good to see all you guys here. I've been, um, I was sick last week, as you guys know, and I really missed not being able to to hang out with you guys, and it's been it's been great to be back. Um, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Nick Griffin. I'm the lead pastor here at Wayfarers, and uh, I'm very excited that you guys have decided to uh, to join us today. And for those of you watching online light later as well, I want to welcome you and say that I'm very excited you guys are watching this as well. Um, so today, uh, as I was kind of preparing for the sermon, it was interesting. I was thinking about the concept of Halloween a little bit, you know, it's October, it's the month, it's Halloween. I'm curious, show of hands, who in the room is like a fan of Halloween? You like Halloween, it's, it's a fun holiday for you. All right, all right. How many of you just like hate Halloween? You're just like, I don't understand, what's the big deal? What's the, don't understand it, and it's saying neutral, you know, kind of could go both ways. It's funny, I, um, I grew up with that division in my household directly. My mom hates Halloween. In her like Hispanic upbringing, Hispanic culture, it's the devil's holiday. You don't do anything with it. She wants nothing to do with Halloween, and 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 she, you know, hated anything that had to do with it. Was always very uncomfortable with it. My dad, on the other hand, weirdly, I think a lot of people wouldn't expect this, knowing his personality. He loves Halloween. He thinks it's great. Um, he 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 really enjoyed. He really loved. Um, uh, getting dressed up for Halloween. He loved putting costumes on as a kid. He has lots of great memories of going trick-or-treating and all this kind of stuff. And so it was really funny growing up kind of seeing this 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 back and forth even within my own household about whether whether Halloween was a good holiday or something we really wanted to celebrate um, or not. But it's interesting, if I have to be honest, I think I probably leaned my mom's direction a little bit more most of my life. I didn't completely understand it. I just felt like in Christianity, there's no space, there's no room for some of this kind of like darker, um, weirder stuff that kind of comes around Halloween. But I have to be honest, I've been I've been changing my perspective on that a little bit. Um, there was a podcast episode of, of a podcast Noah, our teaching pastor here, and myself really like that talked a lot about how God can sometimes speak through some of these, these darker, um, disturbing images in in ways about things that um, that we don't even expect and how it how God uses all kinds of things to speak and to teach us and even those kind of maybe darker more disturbing things that are centered around Halloween sometimes even those things God can use uh, to teach us things to, 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 to grow us to mature us and so I wanted to focus in today on one of those things that I see um, in the Bible. This is, this, is, this is one of those things that was kind of a, a darker, scarier thing in the scriptures that, that God, I think, used to teach us lots of very, very important lessons. It's funny, it's not something that scares us today, but for the ancient Israelites and a lot of the first people that were listening to these scriptures, this would have been very scary to them. Uh, I've talked about it before, actually, in a previous sermon. I remember several of you were, this was very interesting to you, but I was just talking about how for the ancient Israelites, the sea was terrifying. It was one of the scariest things to them, the, the, the ocean, the sea, water. They were terrified of it. And if you kind of look at the geography of Israel, you can kind of understand why. Um, we, we've got 
very thin map you can see kind of of the of the the layout of the geography of Israel and if you look along their their kind of coastline there the on the on the far side so my right your left uh, of of the coastline you see that that their entire coastline is just flat all the way down there's there's not really any like inlets there's not any little peninsulas there's not a gulf it's just it's just directly you go from the the coastline straight into the middle of the mediterranean sea and that may not mean a lot to a lot of us but i remember um when adrian and i were in israel on a trip our guide explained to us that basically what this means is that there's no there's no natural harbor there's no safe place where the waves don't just immediately smack you as soon as you get out into the ocean. For the ancient Israelites, the second they got to the beach and went straight into the Mediterranean, you're talking massive waves, you're talking huge currents, you're talking just the, the scariest and most terrifying aspects of the ocean would kind of immediately take them. So uh, the beaches in Israel aren't really uh, places you go and, and, and hang out, uh, you know. We, we've missed that a little bit in the United States. We've got kind of this, this Gulf Coast, which is like not as crazy. And you know, you hear people all the time, they go on vacation, Panama City, and you know, uh, all, all, the, all the nice, calm beaches that are kind of protected by this natural Gulf. The Israelites didn't have that. When they looked out at the ocean, they just saw huge waves, massive currents, and terrifying oceans. And it's really interesting because when you know that, when you become aware of that and you start reading through the whole Bible, you start seeing how scared they actually were of the water and of the ocean and how that's a theme that comes up over and over and over again. So for the sake of time, I didn't want to just read through a million examples for you guys of this, but I'm going to put them up on the screen. Maybe if you want to take notes, you can uh, write some of these down and go look them up later on your own time. But I, I would venture to say that many of you probably are familiar with a lot of these stories, and I, I want to show you the, this through line all the way through the scriptures of this, this thing that terrified the ancient Israelites, but that became very important for teaching lessons to God. So. First off, we're starting right at the very beginning in Genesis. In the beginning of Genesis, you see uh, the Spirit of God, what it says is kind of hovering over the waters. I remember when I was reading uh, some of those early verses in, in, in creation, specifically in Genesis 1, verse 2, you see this line that the Spirit of God hovers over the waters. And it, it seemed weird to me. You know, the, the implication is that there's kind of already water there. And the language that it uses, uh, it's this really fun set of, of Hebrew phrases, tohu vavohu, just talks about chaos and disorder. It's, it's kind of a, a good way to translate a lot of that. Um, I did a whole YouTube video about that, which I'll probably send to Reagan so she can repost that this week if you guys want to watch that. All about the chaos and disorder that was represented by the waters. And so the, the beginning of the biblical story starts with chaotic, terrifying, dark water and the Spirit of God hovering over those waters. And what we go on to see in the creation story is we see uh, God kind of taking that, that chaos and, and bringing order out of it. It's really interesting because there's a lot of similarities between the way Genesis describes the creation of the world and the way another ancient group of people, the Babylonians, also describe the creation of the world. It's really funny. If you put the two stories side by side, you see... Uh, a whole bunch of similarities. But the difference is that the ancient Babylonians, their, 
the, their God that they worshiped, kind of the, the highest God that they worshiped, was uh, this God of the ocean, <laughs> the God of, of the waters. And you see this kind of come up again later on when you see the in the book of Job. You know, many of you know the story of Job where he loses um, uh, everything that he has, and he has kind of this whole, this whole moment where he is... <laughs> Uh, being counseled by his friends to, to just curse God and die. And, 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 and Job holds out kind of the whole way through. But the end of the book is, is, is weird if you've, if you've ever read it. It's, it's 40 chapters. There's a lot going on. But if you get to the kind of those last few chapters, especially chapters 41 and 42 of Job, you finally get God's response. God's kind of been silent almost throughout a lot of this book. And at the very end, God finally answers Job. And his answer is like an entire chapter talking about this sea monster <laughs> named Leviathan. And we miss the importance of that. We're like, what's the, what's, the, what's the big deal? Why is he talking about Leviathan so much? Um, there's a lot of speculation. What is Leviathan? Is it some kind of dinosaur? Is it some kind of mythical sea monster? Who, who, who knows what's going on in, in that? But it, it's so weird to me, at least initially, that that's what God spent so much of his time responding to Job with. But I finally started to understand it the more I've started to understand kind of some of that ancient history and started to understand the, the sort of chaos that was represented by the waters, how terrified the early Israelites were of the waters. You see, Leviathan was, like I said, it's the sea monster that played a major role in a lot of the, the, the Babylonian stories. They, they worshipped the sea monster in a way, and they viewed it as this kind of terrifying, powerful creature, the most powerful creature, the most scary thing that could be out there. And it's really interesting that God's response to Job is to make him look at the thing that scares them the most. <laughs> look at the, at the sea monster that you're terrified of. And God describes the sea monster, and he starts talking about no one can beat it. It's super strong. It's got these shields that nobody can penetrate. And it's almost just kind of like I can just imagine Job's already terrified. This is the thing he's, like, scared of, and God's just sitting there going into lots of detail about how much more terrifying Leviathan is than even Job can imagine. But the reason God brings that up is because he says he's the one that created Leviathan. He is the one that has authority and power over Leviathan. He is the one who has a power over the, the chaos and terrifying nature of the waters. And this is ultimately kind of like fully realized in uh, a famous story that we all know of Jesus calming the storm. It comes up in several different passages. It's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke in different sections. But this is another one of those sections that um, has recently come to mean a lot more to me, one of those stories that has come to mean a lot more to me, as I've really understood how, how afraid the Jews were of the water. It's funny, when Adrian and I went to Israel, we got the opportunity to go out onto the Sea of Galilee, the sea where this story takes place. And I gotta be honest, I was, uh, I was a little disappointed. <laughs> it was, uh, I, I, when I've heard these stories of the storm, of the Sea of Galilee, all these stories that happen, I'm imagining this massive sea that, you know, terrifying, huge waves, whatever. 
it really isn't that big. I, <laughs> I probably should have showed you guys a picture. Maybe we can post that on social media here later, too. But, uh, you know, I remember we pulled up to it. We go over this hill. We're looking down at the Sea of Galilee, and I'm like, I feel like I could swim across that. It just, <laughs> like, I'm a terrible swimmer, but it does not feel like it's that big. You, could, you can clearly see from one side to the other, kind of wherever you are. It's not just this huge, massive, imposing sea that I was expecting. And I remember we took a, a boat ride out onto the Sea of Galilee where we were uh, talking about and thinking about this story of Jesus calming the storm. And the whole time I just remember thinking, man, the disciples were wimps. This is a, <laughs> like, I don't care what kind of storm it is. This doesn't seem that terrifying. Again, I feel like I could swim over there. I feel like I could get off this boat and swim to safety. But again, I don't have all of that cultural baggage that they had. They were terrified. The waters, the oceans represented to them chaos, fear, disorder. There was this um, kind of psychological thing that was going on with them. And that's what's so interesting about Jesus' response. Jesus is asleep. <laughs> He's just chilling. He's just in the back of the boat. He is asleep. He is not worried about it. It is such a drastic difference to the to the just terrifying fear that you see from the disciples. And ultimately, when, when Jesus uh, wakes up, calms the disciples down, and then just speaks, and the storm dies down, it's interesting that the disciples, it says that they're now even more afraid. <laughs> because this is their realization that the, the, the thing they are the most terrified of they are seeing that Jesus is powerful over their, their biggest fear in a way. On top of that, the, the, the oceans, the seas for them also represented um, evil. Evil was closely connected to the oceans. There's, again, several passages that I could bring up. But an interesting connection I've been noticing is in stories that talk about demons uh, in the New Testament especially. When you have these uh, first off, there's this story of, um, of a little boy that's demon-possessed, and it says that the demon uh, will, will take control of him. And I always remember reading that story, and it would say that the demon would throw him into the fire, which is scary enough. We're all terrified of fire. But there was this other verse that I'd never noticed, which is that it always mentioned the fact that the demon would also try to throw the boy into the water. And said, into the fire and into the water is what you can see in Mark uh, 9.22. That, that's where the demon's trying to throw them. And, and uh, this into the water thing, again, remembering how terrified the Jews are of the water, it's extra scary for them. There's another connection with that I saw in this, this other famous story of Jesus delivering a, a man from demon possession. It's uh, found in all of the other Gospels as well, Mark uh, Mark, Luke, Matthew. It has to do with uh, with these pigs. Um, many of you maybe know this story where there's a there's a man that's demon possessed by a, a multitude of demons, and uh, when Jesus goes to deliver this man from his demon possession, uh, the demons in this man they ask uh, to be to be thrown into the body of this of this herd of pigs that's kind of off to the side. And as soon as Jesus agrees with that, he delivers this man from demon possession, throws him into the herd of pigs. There's an interesting detail you notice in that story, which is that the pigs then run off a cliff into the water. <laughs> it's it's, uh, it's, it's uh, directly where these, these now demon-possessed pigs, this huge herd of pigs, it's, 
it's almost comical to us uh, when you think about it. It's just like they just immediately all run off a cliff into the water. But I don't think that the, the symbolism of that was lost, again, to these early Jewish readers. These, these evil forces uh, are kind of drawn to this chaos and evil in the water that the, the Jews um, associated with that. And there's a, the first place I ever noticed this is at the very end, uh, at the very end of the Bible in the book of Revelation. Uh, Many of you have heard of this section in the book of Revelation where it talks about the beast. Um, It's actually right, you know, just a a chapter or two before you get the the famous uh, scary passages about 666 and about the mark of the beast and about all this kind of uh, stuff that different Christians have speculated about over uh, the centuries. But the, the detail I notice, especially in Revelation 13, this is the very first verse when it's describing this beast. It says that this beast comes out of the water. That's, where, that's the vision that, that John sees is he sees this beast coming out of the water. Because again, to them, the, the waters, these, these, these chaotic waters were representative of chaos and of evil. And ultimately, the, the waters were also closely connected with the grave and with death. And this was the verse that kind of originally got me thinking about uh, this whole concept. And it's actually in uh, 1 Peter. I want to read it for you guys. 1 Peter chapter 3. It, felt, it feels like a very appropriate, uh, very appropriate Halloween-type verse in a way. But it, it describes after Jesus... Starting in verse 19, after, after being made alive, Jesus went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, uh, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah. This is one of those wild verses that I'm sure a lot of you would want me to go into lots of detail. What is this all about? Jesus is going and, and preaching after his resurrection to these uh, imprisoned spirits. Um, we don't have time to go in it in the, ver- in the sermon today, but this Friday we're going to be dealing with it in our deep dive podcast. So if you guys are curious about that first part of the verse, tune into the podcast later uh, this Friday and you can see a little bit more about what that specifically means. But the connection I noticed was in the second part where it talks about God waiting patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. And he says, in it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Water being connected to baptism is kind of the the context I've always had with water. Water is connected with with life and with salvation, with baptism. But again, I had never really thought about, would that have been how the early Jews would have thought of these baptismal practices? Um, you see, they, they had, like, I, like I've mentioned already, all of this other kind of uh, negative and, and terrifying connotations with water in a way. And I think Peter is tapping into that when he's talking about, when he's connecting it to the story of Noah. Uh, Noah and the ark, we, we grew up hearing that story. Maybe you've seen paintings of it in children's uh, church places or in, in nurseries. Uh, we think of it as kind of this happy story where God saves his people and all these animals uh, kind of go into this boat and they get saved from destruction. But again, remembering the context, who it was written to originally, I think this story would have been terrifying to the early listeners. 
I think the, the imagine just like a, 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 a Jewish child who's growing up, and this is the first time they're hearing this story. When they are hearing a story about how the water comes and swallows up the whole world and kills everybody on earth, that's a terrifying story to a, uh, to a, a little Jewish child. That is something that would be, uh, I, I imagine, nightmare-inducing for a lot of them to hear this story. And so that's why the, the, the salvation that Noah and his family experiences uh, would have been so impactful to them. It's a big deal. God isn't just saving them from death. He is saving them from death through the waters. <laughs> this, the scariest thing they can imagine, the thing that haunts their dreams, the thing that they look out over the ocean and they see, that is the thing that God is saving Noah and his family from. And Peter taps into that when he's talking about baptism, when he's talking about what we have been saved from. He understands that we have been saved from uh, a terrifying fate, from, from death, from condemnation, from all of the things that we, are, we, we ourselves are terrified of. This is what Peter is connecting to when he's thinking about baptism. And I had just never made those connections between uh, kind of the fear that the, the ancient Israelites had with the water and how that must have kind of been going through their minds as they were uh, going to partake in these uh, baptism services for a lot of these early Christians. But as I started to study how those early Christians performed baptism, because, you know, ma many of you may have been part of different denominations, different uh, backgrounds where you've seen baptisms done in all kinds of different ways. Maybe you've seen water poured over somebody. Maybe you've seen babies that are being baptized. Maybe you have seen, I know, big baptism services where everybody gets a t-shirt with the church logo on it and they get to say, you know, this is a baptism Sunday. It's a big, exciting thing for them. But what's been interesting is, as I've studied the history, the, 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 the original uh, kind of rituals that the early Christians used for baptism, uh, I see them kind of connecting with all three of those things that these that the Jews associated with water, the things I mentioned already: chaos, um, the uh, evil, and um, the salvation from death. All of those things you can see in kind of the early Christian rituals for baptism. The first one you can see it in is uh, I've mentioned it a few times in sermons before, but they, they had this very particular way that they had to face when they would go down into the baptismal pool before they were going to be baptized. They would they would originally turn uh, west. They would face west. And there's all these uh, things that they would have to uh, renounce, all of these things that they would have to announce as they were facing west. And again, this is one of those things that never made any sense to me until I knew a little bit more of that geography of, uh, of Israel. If we put that map back up of Israel and you look, what is, what is to the west of Israel? It's uh, the ocean. That's, that's, what, that's what they would, they would go into these baptismal pools and they would face the ocean. And when they would go into this uh, pool and face the west, which in their mind was associated with, with evil, with chaos, with destruction. In Revelation, that's where the beast comes out of, out of the sea, out of the west. They would face the west, and there's all these really interesting things that they would say, but the biggest thing they would say is that they would renounce Satan, they would renounce the devil, they would renounce the control that Satan and demons and the darkness of the world had had over them. I think this would have been kind of like a really 
creepy and uh, dark <laughs> moment for a lot of them because you would go into the in the baptismal pool and by facing west it's kind of like you would be just like in symbolically in their mind looking into the eyes of the thing that scares you the most <laughs> looking directly into the eyes of the ocean and of evil and of all of these terrifying things and this is where they would out loud renounce any control that they felt like that the devil had had over them and then they would turn around and face east. And that is where they would do their uh, confessions of Jesus as Lord and his uh, control over their life and giving their lives over to him. And there's all kinds of reasons they would do this. But interestingly, one of the original reasons that they did this is because for a lot of these ancient Jews, they believed that Eden, originally the Garden of Eden, was to the east, maybe somewhere in the ancient Mesopotamian region from where they were. And so for them, facing east was a way of sort of facing uh, that, that very first verse, that Genesis verse, where, where God is kind of in control over the chaos of the waters and, and sort of reminding themselves of the fact that um, there is a world where God is, is ordering things and in control and that sort of that sort of amazing thing that they're looking back at with the Garden of Eden, that's what they are uh, kind of looking forward to in a way. That's a little bit of, of what they are joining into in this kind of baptismal ritual. They are out loud kind of talking about the fact that they are hoping for a world for that sort of uh, paradise that is represented in Eden in the East in what uh, the goodness of God. That's what they are looking forward to. And this is something I would encourage you when you're reading through the scriptures, notice this. this is something that comes up over and over and over again. Constantly evil, dark things are, are, are referenced to the West, and God is often referenced. Goodness, God, great things come from the East. It's this, it's this interesting symbolism that kind of continues to come up over and over and over again. And I think all of this was connected to them because of all of these ideas that they had with the waters and with the things that they were afraid of. And personally for me, the reason this has been so important to me as I've been kind of looking through these baptism rituals is because I, I feel like we have lost a little bit of that in our uh, understanding of what it means to be a Christian. Maybe because we're not afraid of the same things. You know, we're not af afraid of the ocean in the same way that they were. We weren't, we're not afraid of these sea monsters that they maybe were afraid of. We're not, we don't have the same sort of cultural context that they were coming out of. And so there's aspects of, of what happens in baptism or what happens when we become Christians that we're sort of missing out on a lot of that. We're missing out on a lot of what's going on in that moment. But I think all three of those things that they were afraid of, that water for them symbolized, are things that, that we are terrified of, too. You know, we're terrified of chaos. <laughs> Joey mentioned it at the very beginning as he was introing the, uh, the worship service. You know, losing control is one of the most terrifying things to us sometimes. All we want is to, is to kind of have control. The water for us may not symbolize chaos the same way it did for the ancient Israelites, but we are just as afraid of chaos as they were. We are just as afraid of losing control as they were. On top of that, we are uh, kind of terrified of evil, I, I think, rightfully so, but that's one of the things that you can really see in this season as you start talking about um, kind of 
scary movies and Halloween and a lot of the horror things that we are afraid of is the, uh, the fact that we are ourselves terrified of the evil that kind of surrounds us. And ultimately, the big thing everybody is terrified of <laughs> is of death, obviously. We, we are terrified of death. All three of these things, I think, are things that in baptism, I think Peter is saying it, I think the early Christians saw it, I think they saw it in ways that we maybe don't, it, it, it is kind of represented the, the, the power and the authority that Jesus has over those things. Where we, where was we are terrified of chaos, we're terrified of disorder. They, they would face Eden and they would, they would look back to a time when, when God was perfectly had everything in order and they knew that that time was coming again. That's what they were looking forward to, a world without the craziness, without the chaos, where God is in control and where everything is made right. When it comes to evil, the evil things that they were afraid of, they, they in the baptism service would directly face to the West, face that evil head on, and they would, they would renounce any of the power that it had over them and recognize the, the real power that Jesus had over those evil forces. And ultimately, the, the, the real connection with baptism and death that Peter saw, Peter saw it because he connected it to Noah, he saw this, this salvation from death that Noah experienced as something that we were also experiencing in baptism. This is why me, personally, I've always been kind of really committed to filling up a big pool and performing a baptism where you literally kind of dunk somebody under the water. I, I think it really gets that point across a lot stronger of, of, of the death that is happening in that moment. I've, I've, I don't remember if I heard somebody say this or if it was just something I was thinking on my own, but the, the symbolism that was represented in that for these kind of ancient peoples might would be a little bit more closely symbolized for us if, uh, if, if our baptism services involved some sort of like coffin <laughs> being placed out and us having to like be laid down in it. Can, can you imagine if that's what it took for you to become a Christian? You know, uh, maybe instead of the church having the, the baptism service where they give you the cool t-shirt that's got the church logo on it and says that you were baptized. Can you imagine uh, the kind of creepiness of a service being you walking into the room, seeing a big coffin maybe placed in the center and you would have to go and lay in that coffin and have it shut and that be a part of the, uh, the, the ceremony. I think, I think conceptually, psychologically, that is what was going on in a baptism service for these early ancient peoples. That's how they were looking at it. The, you know, the thing they were the most scared of, <laughs> the water, that's what they were going down into. That's what they were being buried under. And that's what they were being raised from into new life. And so that excitement on the other end of it is something that I especially feel that we have um, kind of lost a little bit. We, we don't really see the, the darkness that, that we are being saved out of, that we are being saved from. And can you imagine the, uh, the, the relief that these people would have felt after being dunked under the water, the thing they're so terrified of, and being raised back to life and you just kind of have that breath of life again? I personally experienced this whenever I was baptized. I was baptized at a pretty young age. And I was in this, um, uh, I've always been like a, a kid that's got tons of anxiety, scared of a million things. I was born terrified of everything. And so uh, I didn't know how to swim yet. 
whenever I was baptized. And uh, I don't know if any of you experienced this as kids, but I had actually never been like under the water. I didn't ever remember having had my head underwater <laughs> ever. When I was baptized was the very first time I ever went completely under the water, had my head completely dunked under the water. First time I remember it, at least, I don't know. Maybe it happened when I was a kid or something. When I was a baby, I don't know, my parents tried to throw me in the pool or something like that. But that the first, that I, first time I can ever remember my head being underwater was when I was baptized. And I remember being terrified of it the whole lead up to it. I remember I wanted to be baptized. I knew I wanted to be baptized. But the thing I was scared of was, I was like, what did, what if I drown? <laughs> what if I what if I go under the water and I don't come back up? And there was just this huge fear that I was experiencing. And I'll never forget uh, the, my heart's beating. I'm having to climb up into this baptistry. I'm being told to you know hold my nose, and I'm I'm holding it so tight. I'm sure I've got bruises on my nose from how tight I'm holding it. And my dad was the one who did the baptism for me, and, and, and I go under the water, and I'm terrified. I'm so scared in this moment. Everything is just terrifying. And the relief I felt when I came back out of that water, I, I didn't drown. I didn't die. <laughs> I was able to breathe again was this, uh, this, this symbolism in that moment that I think I only recently have really understood how, how powerful that was and how similar that would have been to what a lot of these early Christians would have felt. And so whatever the things that you are afraid of, I think especially in this kind of season as we're looking forward to Halloween, uh, what, what are the things that scare you? What are the things that terrify you? Is it, is, it, is it losing control? Is it chaos? Is it disorder? Is it evil people taking control and taking over? Is it death and some of the anxieties related to death, whether it's sickness or loss of our health or, or whatever the fears that may be going on in this moment? I would encourage you to, to really understand that um, both in baptism and throughout all the scriptures, we really see that God is, is, is more powerful than all of those things. He is actually fully in control of all of the things that, uh, that could terrify us. I think the early Jews saw this. The thing they were the most scared of is the thing that over and over and over again, God shows his power over. And I think that's why they so clearly saw it when Jesus calmed the storm. He just, he just stands up, he, he just talks to it, and suddenly the storm is calm. That is, that is such a powerful image of the power that, that God has over the things that, that terrify us in a way. So I want to take just a few seconds I want you to just pray, try to think about what are, what are the things that are scaring you right now? What are the things that are uh, causing you anxieties? What are the things that are causing you fear? And I want you to really focus on the truths that are, are kind of all throughout here of the, of the power that God has over those things. And I would ask you, you know, I would encourage you to ask God if you're, if you're not yet you know, fully convinced of the power that he has over those things. Ask God to, to, to show you in the same way that he showed these, the, the early Jews. He showed them over and over and over again his power over the waters. I promise you, God is, uh, he wants to show you that the, the, you're safe, <laughs> the power that he has, the fact that he is in control, and the fact that you can trust him. So let's just take a few seconds, bow your heads, pray. Bring your fears, your anxieties, the things you're worried about for the Lord. And ask him to, um, 
to help to calm those fears and show you his power over them. Lord, you have constantly shown your, your power and your authority over all of the things that might um, scare us, that might terrify us, that might keep us up at night, that might give us nightmares. Just as you showed the ancient Israelites that their biggest fear was, was nothing in comparison to you, I ask that you would do the same thing in our lives. Show us uh, your, 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 your power over all of the things that, uh, that we are afraid of. And show us that that uh, fear really doesn't make a lot of sense, considering the fact that we are, are members of your kingdom and that you are a, a good and powerful king who is in control and, 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 and fully above all of those things that causes so much fear and anxiety. I ask that you would just make that uh, apparent to us as we uh, go forward here. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, I figured we would end tonight the same way we usually do, with uh, opportunity to uh, partake in communion. Um, I think that something I recently realized when I was looking at... uh, Jesus instituting the uh, communion, the Lord's Supper, where he was, uh, you know, explaining what was going on to his disciples. I've never noticed how much fear was present in that moment for everybody. We see it in Jesus. We see the anxieties he has before his crucifixion. But we also see the the fear that the disciples have. They're terrified that Jesus is going away <laughs> and that they're going to be alone all again. They're, they're terrified that that Jesus who can calm the storms is going to disappear, <laughs> is going to leave them alone. And I love that a part of what Jesus wants them to remember when they, when they get together and when they do this communion uh, ritual is that he, he, he wants them to use it as a way to kind of look forward to that meal that they're eventually going to be able to have with him once again. I can sort of uh, imagine the uh, excitement that a lot of the disciples felt in the early church as they would gather together for communion and they would... And they would take the bread and take the uh, take the wine and, and and just and just get excited thinking about I'm gonna one day I'm gonna be able to sit at a table with Jesus and have this exact same meal. And I think that's an excitement that we can feel as well when we partake in this. So uh, if you would like to partake in communion, we've got uh, stuff on this table here in the back. I'm just going to play a little bit of music in the background. We'll give you guys a few minutes. Feel free to, to sit and pray and reflect on what this means. And when you um, feel like you, you, you're you ready to, feel free to go to the back and uh, grab the, the juice and the bread, partake in communion um, whenever you would like. We'll finish up right after that. All right, well, feel free to st- still take your time if you'd like to, uh, if you haven't had a chance to take the communion yet. But... Um, figured to finish up here today. I just wanted to encourage you guys once again, uh, this Friday, we're going to be talking about that weird first verse. Maybe if some of you guys are like, what is all that about? What is that weird passage that talks about Jesus going and and preaching to imprisoned spirits? Uh, I guess it's going to be a very spooky edition of our deep dive podcast, but, uh, you can check that out. That'll post, uh, sometime Friday evening. We'll make sure to post on our Instagram whenever that goes up as well. Um, and if you haven't had a chance yet, go back and, uh, listen to some of the other deep dive podcasts we've been doing. Uh, we've done a 
deep dives on people's stories recently. And it's been really, really cool to hear the backstories of, uh, of different members here at the church. Um, so if you want to know a little bit more about some of the other people that have been coming here and hanging out, uh, go check out some of those past episodes, hear a little bit more about their stories. After we, uh, after we finish our spooky edition of the Deep Dive podcast, we'll, we're going to get back to it. Um, and we're actually doing a, a, going to do a really cool story after that on uh, my friend Jordan Miller. He's uh, come and hung out with us a few times. He has a very interesting, uh, very powerful story about how God delivered him from a lot of things in his life. And I think you're definitely going to want to check that out. So that's my encouragement. Go check out the Deep Dives. Here's some of the stories of the other people. And tune in this Friday. Otherwise, I will see you guys all next week. Thanks for coming out.